We are continuing this morning our series in Jonah. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, flip over to Jonah chapter 1. Turn back to Jonah chapter 1. Of course, we are picking up right in the middle of a hurricane, both a, a literal hurricane, a giant tempest, which the Lord hurled upon the sea, which is battering the ships, or the ship rather, uh, but also a tempest in the hearts of those who are on the ship, uh, including Jonah. Thus far, our story has been pretty straightforward. Uh, events happen progressing along a timeline, along a plan that is just very straightforward. But it gets a little more complicated this morning. I'm going to get a little bit more complex. Before I read, though, before we jump in, I'm going to actually read the whole of chapter 1 just to keep us in mind of everything that's gone before. But Before I read, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us through his word. If you're able, please stand while I pray. Remain standing as I read from Jonah chapter 1. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your word because in it we find life. In it we find challenge for our sin, challenge for our false ideas, but also we find grace and mercy, drawing us once again back to you. And yet, Lord, if you do not restrain our sin, if you do not channel our hearts and lead us where you want us to go, we will certainly go astray. We will certainly take your word and twist it to mean what we want it to mean. So Lord, we pray that you would be with us, that you would be among us by your spirit, that you would guide us and direct us as we study your word. Let your name be praised above all else. Work your truth in us that we might understand it, believe it, and apply it faithfully. Let your name be praised because of the preaching of your word this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading, I'm going to read all of chapter 1, Jonah chapter 1. This is God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea so that there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled cargo down, or, that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down, gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What are you doing sleeping? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us, you on whose account this evil has come, what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had, he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, and he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. 
Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. According to educator Eads Gilbert, getting a good education for their children is not the only factor motivating some parents today to enroll their children in elite schools. During her 15 years as headmistress of Spence, a prestigious Upper East Side girls' school in New York City, Mrs. Gilbert, Miss Gilbert, had seen an increasing number of parents using their children's education for their own benefit. Seems that many parents having a child admitted to a prestigious school is important not simply for the child's sake, but also for the enormous social advantages that it provides to the parents. Contacts made in the elite elementary school context can give parents a large leg up in the social scene. This mixed parental motivation for admission has had a dramatic impact on the children's educational environment. Ms. Gilbert says that she knows parents who have applied to her kindergarten purely because the children of Sigourney Weaver, Michael Bloomberg, and Katie Couric attended her school. Parents lobby for their seven-year-olds to be assigned to classes with the children of parents who are rich and who are prominent in hopes that the parents would become friends. Parents jockey to volunteer for the parental committees where they might have the best opportunities to get the best contacts in the world. It has even degenerated to the point where back-to-school night is taken on the atmosphere of a competitive Park Avenue cocktail party. It is sad when people have mixed motives in the education of their children. Now, of course, the children will, at least in theory, the, will, the children will get a solid education. These are good schools. They will gain the type of contacts that will probably be able to provide benefits for them to serve them throughout their life. That is a worthy goal and one that, in some ways at least, isn't diminished at all by the parents' extra motives, ulterior motives. I mean, it's hardly surprising that the parents have extra motives, ulterior motives, mixed motives. After all, mixed motives is kind of part and parcel with being a human being under the curse. We all have mixed motives all the time. We get in trouble when we put the wrong motives in first place, when we prioritize the wrong motive in the mixture there. Now, last week, I, I talked about 
Jonah's answer to when the mariners asked what they should do that they might be saved so that the sea would quiet down. And when I, as I talked about it last week, I painted a very clear, very simple picture. Jonah would rather die than obey even a little bit the command of God to go and preach to the pagans and possibly see the hated pagans receive mercy. And that picture was both clear and true. But for all its clarity, it wasn't all of the truth. If you've read the story of Jonah before, even the children's storybook version of it, you know that after being thrown in the sea and swallowed by the great fish, Jonah's going to pray to the Lord. Now, if Jonah's heart had remained exactly where it was when he heard the Lord's command and was like, nope, I'm out. If his heart remained exactly there, then we'd have some pretty hard questions about, well, how did he get to where he could pray to the Lord in chapter 2? Because of that, I think we need to understand that, as one commentator put it, there is no reason to think that Jonah's motives and intentions would be any more orderly or coherent than ours would be if we were in that situation. In a moment of peril and crisis like that, we have all of these competing goals and desires, and they all get kind of wadded up in a ball in our hearts and come out in different ways. Perhaps it's, as, as we look at this, uh, just like every other human being that has ever lived, Jonah was fumbling around in the dark, not knowing really which way to go, wrestling with multiple motivations with competing desires. Yes, when facing a call to confront those he considered to be his enemies with some historical evidence and support for that, that thinking. When ca called to confront those he considered his enemies with the gospel, yes, he hardened his heart and he ran away. Or perhaps it's more accurate to say that the crisis revealed a hardness in his heart that had been there the whole time that he just ne had never seen before. But of course, he'd spent years, maybe even decades before the crisis came, as a prophet, proclaiming the gospel of God, receiving and reveling in it himself, and proclaiming the grace of God to the people of God. But the hound of heaven will not turn aside from pursuing those who are his, no matter where they are whether the den of iniquity or the prophet's pulpit, whether in a ship fleeing from the Lord or in a respectable home with all your ducks in a row, the Lord will find you and will draw you to himself if you are his. He will challenge your sinful attitudes and your sinful motivations so that you will be drawn into sanctification. And perhaps that looks like a command to go to a people and to a place that you hate and do good for them. Despite Jonah's flight, despite his rebellion, his refusal to serve, nevertheless, the Lord has been at work in his heart, drilling into the hardness that has always been there that Jonah held close, breaking him down until there was nothing left but Jonah's reliance on a holy God. Now, in this moment, Jonah does not use the language of repentance. 
While he's on the ship here, he doesn't pray. Not even when the pagans come to him and say, please pray to your God. Even then, we have no evidence, no testimony that he prayed even then. And yet, regardless of the way that he's hardened his heart, when it finally comes down to it, he accepts this storm is on his account. That his sin is due a reckoning, a death must be paid. Oh, Jonah still isn't where he needs to be. He's still not repenting fully or even really fully recognizing all that's going on in his heart. He still doesn't want to preach to the pagans. But he begins to acknowledge the truth that is being borne in on him by the situation. And with that acknowledgement, he starts just a little to take responsibility for the situation. He starts to think about the effects of his sin on someone other than himself. When he tells the mariners to hurl him into the sea, he doesn't mention God at all, for sure. Doesn't mention sin or the consequences of sin, but he does say that the storm, verse 12, will quiet down for you. It is because of me this great tempest has come upon you. No, he's not looking at the Lord in that moment, but he does finally begin to see the sailors, pagan though they are, as fully human. And who are bearing the brunt of a storm that he is responsible for, that his sin provoked. It's a funny thing. Jonah refused to go to Nineveh because he didn't want to preach to the pagans. Because of his love for his own nation, for his own people, and his love for the Lord and his faulty understanding of the Lord, at least. His love for the Lord, as he understood it, made all non-Israelites worthy only of contempt and of destruction. And as much as I would love to tell you that that sort of attitude was unique to Jonah, you would laugh me out of the room if I tried. This is a common feature of human experience. Indeed, it is something that every single human being struggles with on some level. On some level, we are all tempted to think, if you aren't like me, then you are less than me. Less worthy, less valued, less valuable. If you're not like me, then you're less than me. And if we let that attitude sit in our hearts, unchallenged, uncorrected, then your less than me quickly becomes you're worthy of contempt, which then morphs into you're worthy of destruction and even damnation, unlike me. It really does not take long at all for our hearts to solidify, to get harder and harder against everyone around us. But what we're really doing when that happens, what we're really doing then is rejecting grace. Not just for the other person, though certainly for them, but for ourselves too. In that moment, in that relationship, however surface level it is, we implicitly believe that we are innately more holy than the other person or people. 
that we are innately more worthy of being accepted by the Lord. That there is something in us or something which we have done that has earned us a place with him. By our fill in the blank. By our church attendance, by our political position and activism, by our right theology, by our works, by our whatever. Fill in the blank. Something you are, something you have done, has made you acceptable to God. Now, of course, we wouldn't ever say that outright, would we? Because our theology is better than that. We know that that's not the way to think about things. But as we fall into that, you're worthy of only contempt. You're worthy of only destruction, and I'm not. That's what really is underlying that thought, is I've done something or am something that deserves favor from the Lord, and you're not. That is the attitude that creeps in and begins controlling us, controlling our thoughts. And if we don't stop it there, it will then control our words and even our actions. Sin is never content to remain stagnant. It always seeks to grow, seeks to take over. Sin always trends down. But this very pattern in the hearts of people under the curse is the reason that this episode in Jonah's life, in his flight from the Lord, is so important for us to see. How this plays out is instrumental in the Lord breaking Jonah's hardness of heart and leading him to repentance, true repentance. Though it's not a single event, it's, it's a process, and it's one that's going to take at the very least the whole rest of this book for us, us to see him come to a place of repentance, at the very least. Because it was the man of God, the prophet of the Lord, who spoke God's words to God's holy nation, to the people of God's own choosing. It was Jonah who thought himself better than any pagan. It was Jonah who had sinned and was bringing destruction on everyone. And worse than that, it was the pagans that he so despised. It was the pagans who had... In this chapter, in this very section, we have seen them worshiping false gods, violating the first commandment. It was the pagans, wicked and despised, who act rightly before the Lord. When push comes to shove, when they've thrown all the cargo overboard and, thrown and prayed to all their gods, and Jonah tells them to hurl him into the deep lest they drown, they immediately and wisely and selfishly throw him in to save their hides, right? No. The prophet of God has identified the problem and given them the right prescription, but look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men dug in their oars, rowed hard to get back to dry land. But they could not. Rather than killing Jonah, of whom they knew almost nothing, and to whom they owed even less, rather than killing him offhand to placate the God that they didn't know at all and going on about their business, they strained at the oars to get back to land. And when they could make no headway whatsoever against the tempest, they prayed to this God who was pouring his rage out on their ship. Look at verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. 
Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. These men who were so terrified of the storm and of their own impending death, not only did they not throw Jonah overboard right away, they prayed that the Lord would not hold Jonah's blood against them. It is a terrible thing to take the life of someone made in the image of God. Justice sometimes demands it, but justly or not, it is a terrible thing to blot out the life of someone made in God's image. And yet, it is an event to which we in our day have grown far too callous. Whether in the killing of those not yet born or of the killing of those who are inconvenient to society by reason of age or infirmity or poverty or whatever else, it is a terrible thing to take the life of someone who is made in the image of God. But everything in our society, from television and movies to politics to casual attitudes on the street, say that some people just need killing. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not arguing against the death penalty. But rather, I am arguing against an attitude of glibness toward death. An attitude that says that death could be frivolous, could be minor and inconvenience for everybody else. An attitude that says, well, she got what she deserved. Or, well, he shouldn't have been doing what he was doing. Those statements might be true. They miss the point. They miss the point that every human being bears the image of God. And when an image bearer dies, we should weep. When the curse impinges on us in such a way that death happens, we should weep. Even if it is fully justified and sanctioned by the judicial process, even then we should weep and tremble before the Lord that this person made in God's image has to die. And we should be far more hesitant to deal out death than we have come to be in our society. These pagan sailors understood this in a way that is frankly shocking. It would be surprising in a work of the Holy Spirit in any human, but particularly for pagans in this time period. With the records that we have of the pagan religions in the ancient Near East are pretty exhaustively bloodthirsty. A casual approach to death that is deeply at odds with the attitude that these sailors demonstrate here. They rode hard, and when that failed, they asked the, this Lord, this God who they didn't know, but who was able to hurl such a tempest when one of his worshipers fled from him, they prayed that he would hold them guiltless in the death of Jonah. They saw this action throwing Jonah in as merely fulfilling what the Lord had ordered in bringing the storm to bear in the first place. You, O Lord, have done what it pleased you to do. And then they threw him in. Having asked for forgiveness in advance, for pardon in advance, they threw him in. And as soon as they did, the sea ceased its raging. As soon as Jonah touched the water, the storm vanished. And then look at what happens, verse 16. The men 
feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It has been said that the prospect of being hanged in a week concentrates the mind wonderfully. When we know that we're about to die, it clarifies what we need to spend our time on, what matters and what doesn't. Because of that, as death draws closer, as it gets more real to us, men seek the Lord. Even if they've spent their whole lives rejecting him out of hand in calmer times. This is, this is a recognized phenomenon, right? Uh, sometimes it gets called foxhole conversions. Uh, because it is so common, relatively speaking, uh, on a battlefield. As the bullets fly, soldiers cry out to God, get me out of this in one, ple- one piece and I'll change my life. I will worship you however you want if you just get me out of here. Let me live through this. And while most of the time nothing much changes in their lives once they get off the battlefield and out of danger, sometimes it's a legitimate turning to the Lord. I, I-, I personally know a man uh, from a church back in West Virginia who uh, came to faith in Christ on a pitch black middle of the night battlefield in central Vietnam. And for the 50 plus years since then has walked faithfully with the Lord. But for all that such moment of crisis conversions do happen sometimes, what we see here isn't that. This is not in the midst of the battle, in the heat of the battle, we're about to die, so save us and we'll worship you. This is not that. The foxhole prayers go up while the bullets are still flying, not after the battle is over. The vows come as a negotiation tactic. If you save me, then I'll do these things. What do we see here? The sea ceased its raging, and then the men vowed and offered a sacrifice. Their fear of the Lord, their worship came about because of what God had already done, not in hopes that he might do something for them. The prayers that they offered up before, when they were each crying out to their own God, those were foxhole prayers. Get us out of this! But now they're out of it. And now they offer up prayers to the God who actually did something. Their worship came about because of what God had already done, not as a lever to try and force him or prompt him to act. As far as they knew, Jonah had died, his body consigned to the deep. And with God's justice satisfied, the storm stops completely. If the strength of the storm had terrified them earlier, its miraculous end rattles them to their very core. This is no small indication of the might and the majesty of Jonah's God, even without knowing how the Lord had appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and preserve his life, they could see the mighty hand of God at work. Jonah had embarked on this whole journey so he wouldn't have to preach to the pagans, so he wouldn't have to maybe see these hated pagans receive grace from the Lord and almost immediately the Lord uses even Jonah's rebellion to bring a group of hard-hearted pagans to the point of fearing the Lord exceedingly likely rather more than Jonah was at the time 
given their different reactions to God, and spontaneously worshiping him. As they went about their travels, you have to know that every one of these sailors would be telling this story everywhere he went. Let me tell you about the storm that we almost died in and that miraculously stopped, and the God who did it. Don't you know, throughout the Mediterranean basin, everywhere they went, they were telling that story. About Israel's God, who worked with such mighty power, both to hurl the storm and even more to end it when it had accomplished his purpose. In God's providence, even Jonah's rebellion worked to spread the glory of the Lord far beyond the borders of Israel. Now, God's still working on Jonah, as we'll see in coming weeks, but he uses even Jonah's sinful rebellion to glorify his own name. Well, that doesn't make Jonah's rebellion any less wicked. His sin is still sin, and it should still be rejected and despised, even while we worship the Lord for how he used Jonah's sin to glorify himself, to accomplish his good purposes. There is a strain of argument, at least, of thinking in our nation today that it argues that slavery was a positive moral good because it allowed those who were enslaved, who were brought from Africa enslaved, to hear the gospel and repent and believe and come to faith in Christ. And therefore, the thing that brought them must necessarily be a good thing. But this is wickedness. Just as it was with Jonah, just as it was with Joseph's brothers in Genesis, the fact that God turned man's wickedness around to accomplish his own good ends doesn't make man's wickedness any less wicked. It merely increases the glory of the Lord that he was able to use such twisted evil means to accomplish his good ends. It was not good that Jonah disobeyed. It was not good that he fled and endangered these pagans. It was not good that he refused to obey the Lord. It is a testament to the Lord's eternal majesty that he used even Jonah's disobedience to accomplish his own good purpose. And more than that, he used the worship of pagans as Jonah sank beneath the waves to his death as far as he knew, used the worship of these pagans to soften Jonah's hard heart and turn him back to the Lord. It is easy to fall into the trap of believing that you have earned a place with God because of something in you. And having done that, to look down on everyone who you judge to be less worthy, less holy than you are, to forget that none are righteous. That no one does good before the Lord. To forget that even on our best days, even our best moments on our best days are still stained by our sin and ultimately unacceptable before the Lord. We need to repent of our very best moments. Having forgotten that, it is easy to slip into thinking that you know better than God does who is worthy of salvation and who is not. And then despising any who you deem to be unworthy. That hardness of heart may be common, 
But rest assured, the Lord will root it out. The Lord will not allow his name to be mocked. Will not allow those who claim his name to act as if they earned it. To act as if they alone amongst all the human race deserve the favor of the Lord. You have a choice. You have a choice. Oh, don't hear what I'm not saying. Your choice is not be humble before the Lord or don't. That's not the choice. You will be humble. Your choice is how you get there. Will you, with the sailors, see the hand of the Lord at work in his majesty and humble yourself before him? Worship a God who you maybe never knew before and seek him out. Or, Will you with Jonah harden your heart and be crushed, humbled by the mighty hand of the Lord pressing down on you despite your best efforts to get away from him? Turn and repent before the storm comes for you or in the midst of it. Turn and repent and fear the Lord. Worship him alone. Believe his provision for you because Christ died in place of those who were utterly wicked, who were sinful beyond measure. He can accept you and bring you back, bring you to utter righteousness, make you completely holy, despite you are, have, what you have earned is complete destruction. Do not let your pride lead you to the depths. Turn and be saved. Even if it costs you your life, turn and be saved. Our Lord is faithful. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's a hard message. It means we have to trust him more than we trust ourselves, more than we trust our vision, our view of the world and how it fits together. But in the end, your choice is not to be humble or not, but how you will be humbled. Do not let your pride lead you to the depths. Turn and be saved. He is gracious and merciful. He abounds in steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who fear him, who worship him in spirit and in truth. Turn in repentance, in humility, and be saved. He is faithful. He is gracious. He is merciful. He will work it in you. Let's pray.